This week's episode is brought to you by Studio Sweden. Studio is out to revolutionize the way in which people use headphones by removing the choice between a pair that looks good and a pair that works well. They produce stylish headphones with great sound quality at a fraction of the cost of their competitors while maintaining a sleek and stylish look. I personally use a pair of their tray headphones for my bus commute, and I love them. Whether it's catching up on my own podcast diet, on my way to work, or using them at the gym to burn off a little steam after class, they're fantastic. Plus, they come with this nifty little leather carrying bag. Studio is offering listeners of the show 15% off their first order with the coupon code HISTORYOFJAPAN. One word, History of Japan. So head over to their website, www.sudiosweden.com, that's S-U-D-I-O-S-W-E-D-E-N.com, pop in your code, History of Japan, pick up your own pair, and check them out today. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 213, The Scourge of the Gods, part 4. After their first day of invading Japan, I imagine the forces of Kublai Khan pulled back for the evening feeling pretty good about themselves. They'd hit an entrenched Japanese position at a spot where the Japanese knew they were coming, and while the fighting had been intense and the losses had mounted, In the end, they'd more or less carried the day. All told, not too shabby. And hey, the nerve center of Hojo ruling Kyushu, the fortress of Dezaifu, was all of 12 miles away. That's an easy day's march, or even less. Once Dezaifu fell, at a minimum, northern Kyushu was likely to fall into Mongol hands. Possibly the whole island would fall as well. From there... The Mongols would have a strong base for further advances towards Kyoto, Kamakura, and ultimate victory. But that's not quite how things worked out, of course, because the Japanese had an ace in the hole. Or, I suppose that's not really the way to phrase it. Typhoons, after all, are not man-made, and it wasn't like the Hojo planned for a little help from Mother Nature. Except, in a sense, they kind of did, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, what happened? Well, typhoon season happened. It usually peaks during the transition from summer to fall. We're actually kind of in the height of typhoon season as this episode's coming out. However, it can stretch all the way to November. In fact, typhoon season is the same as hurricane season because the two things are basically the same. They're both forms of something called a tropical cyclone. That means when they do come, typhoons produce all the same symptoms a hurricane does. Incredibly intense wind, high and choppy waves, an immense downpour of rain, and generally just very unpleasant conditions. And in November 1274, the story goes that a particularly intense typhoon made landfall in western Kyushu. 
The story goes that the Mongol ground forces had retreated back to their fleets for the evening to escape raids from Japanese troops, and thus that the invasion force was still aboard when the storm struck their ships. The wind and the waves smashed the ships of the Great Khan. The exact casualties are unrecorded, but were bad enough that the commanders on the scene called a retreat back to the mainland. Now, this story has a few problems, and exactly how it played out remains a bit controversial, starting with the fact that November is pretty damn late in hurricane-slash-typhoon season. A massive storm of the type described as having smashed the Mongol fleet would be an unusual occurrence at any time, but one that happens that late in the season? That would be downright weird. Western Kyushu is also not typically the target of typhoons. Most typhoons sweep up from the South Pacific and thus hit the eastern side of Kyushu, or land in Shikoku. It's also hard to know how seriously to take accounts of the storm because at least one of the major institutions responsible for chronicling it had a vested interest in playing the whole thing up as much as possible. Remember how I said that in a certain sense the Japanese had planned for this? Well, it's a bit strange to think about, but consider all of this from the perspective of a pre-scientific religion. Particularly in the hybrid Shinto Buddhism that dominated Japan at this time, the natural world was seen as a reflection of cosmic truths, and the manifestation of those truths was influenced by actions of humans in the world. The gods, or Buddhas, or spirits, or what have you, made their will known through nature, and that will could, theoretically, be altered by particularly intense or convincing prayer. And that's precisely what Japan's clergy, particularly the Buddhist religious establishment, claimed to have done in the wake of the storm. The Buddhist clergy were deeply tied to the ruling Hojo clan. Remember that both Tokimune and his father Tokiyori were particularly devout Zen Buddhists, and while Zen was their preferred practice, they were still supporters of other branches of Buddhist theology. And because every advantage counted, Buddhist priests friendly to the regime had been working, or I suppose praying, around the clock for victory. Rituals designed to invoke the favor of gods and Buddhas called down the wrath of heaven on the Mongols. Particularly devout Buddhists even reached out to clergy who were less friendly to the Hojo regime. The fiery Buddhist preacher Nichiren, who had been exiled from central Japan not once, but twice, and came fairly close to being executed, only to be saved in his own telling by a literal divine intervention, was recalled from exile to be interviewed by senior figures within the Hojo government. Nichiren had predicted as far back as 1260 that the Mongols would come and invade Japan in chastisement for what he described as a failure to adhere to the true Buddhist path. Though frankly, predicting that a group of people who had tried to invade almost everything in their way would come after Japan too is not that much of a stretch. All of this is an elaborate way of saying that the Buddhist establishment saw itself as deeply involved in the war effort by praying for successful defense of the homeland. The typhoon seems to have been an answer to their prayer. So Buddhists were deeply interested in playing up their contribution to the defense of Kyushu, which might have resulted in an exaggerated record of how destructive the typhoon was. Certainly, records by samurai who fought in the conflict play up the ferocity and determination of the defenders, and seem to suggest 
that the typhoon merely finished a job that was already done. Some military historians have gone so far as to declare that the 1274 invasion failed because of errors on the part of the Mongols. For example, the decision to strike the outlying islands of Tsushima and Iki tipped the Japanese off to the nature of the invasion and allowed them to guess the landing site, providing more time for the Dezaifu garrison to muster reinforcements that otherwise could have remained scattered to intercept other landings. Thomas Conlin, a historian of the Mongol invasions, offers just such an argument in his book. The fact that the Japanese were mobilized and ready for the Mongols negated the biggest Mongol military advantage, which had always been their speed and ability to hit opponents before they were ready. Conlin also points out that at least one major chronicle of the invasions, the Hachiman Guroki, doesn't mention a storm of any kind in 1274. The private diary of a direct witness to the invasions, a samurai named Kadeno Koji Kanenaka, describes what happened as little more than the shift in winds that forced the fleet out of the harbor. Quote, Someone said that several tens of thousands of invaders' boats came sailing on the high seas. Nevertheless, suddenly a reverse wind blew them back to their native lands. A few of the enemy boats were beached. The retainers of Otomo Shikibu Taifu captured 50 of the invaders, bound them, and are escorting them to the capital. The reverse wind must have arisen as a result of the protection of the gods. Most wonderful. End quote. Now, sources from Kublai Khan's own Yun dynasty do refer to a massive storm destroying the Mongol fleet, but as Conlin correctly points out, such records could be nothing more than excuses designed to cover up a major military catastrophe. The story was also popularized in our modern period for reasons divorced from historical reality, as you could probably guess from the fact that kamikaze, divine wind, is a term more closely associated with suicide missions than with lucky instances of meteorology. During the Second World War, the Imperial Japanese government went to great lengths to promote the legend of the 1274 typhoon as an example of a seemingly doomed Japanese resistance to a foreign power that was saved at the last minute by a lucky twist of fate. The popularity of the story, in other words, may be a survival of old Japanese imperial propaganda more so than actual research. On the other hand, Back in 2014, a geoscientist studying lake sediments named John Woodruff did find evidence in excavated sedentary layers of typhoon-strength storms hitting western Kyushu around the correct time for the Mongol invasions, as well as more general evidence that typhoon-strength storms in that part of Japan may have been more common at that time than they are today. So hey, maybe there's more truth to the story than we thought. Or maybe the invaders expected the Japanese to just roll over, and then decided to withdraw when that didn't happen, and when the initial landing proved a harder go than they thought. Either way, Japan was granted a stay of execution. The Mongol fleet was headed back home. But Kublai Khan was not one to forget or forgive. His forces would be back. So the question then became, how do we prepare for round two? But before we get there, it's important to answer the obvious question. Why didn't the next invasion come right away? The Mongols would take seven years to return, but surely it would not take that long to rebuild what had been lost, draft some new troops, 
and return for some sweet, sweet vengeance. And no, in fact, it would not. But as the invasion fleet limped home, Kublai Khan found himself facing some new problems that would keep his attention focused on the Asian mainland for the foreseeable future. First, the Koreans, as they so often do, were getting restless. Mongol overlordship in Korea was never exactly popular. In fact, rebellion against the Mongols would, a century later, result not only in the ejection of the Mongols from the peninsula, but the fall from power of the 400-year-old royal house of Goryeo for collaborating with the Mongols. And even before the fall of the Mongols in Korea, rebellions against both Mongol rule and Korean collaborators who enabled it were, well, not infrequent. One such, the Sambyolcho Rebellion, had only finally been quashed in 1273 after three years of fighting, and incidentally after providing the excuse the Mongols needed to move more troops into Korea to restore order, to protect their ally. And as soon as that rebellion had ended, the Goryeo kings were ordered to assemble their forces for the invasion of Japan. After the failure of the 1274 invasion, Goryeo cried uncle. It was out of money, out of ships, and running dangerously low on manpower, so can we please just give it some time before we go wipe the grin off the collective faces of the Japanese? Because seriously, guys, we are flat broke. This would be inconvenient if any old ally did it, but remember, Korean warships were essential for supplementing the still rather thin on the ground navy of the Yuan dynasty. If the Koreans couldn't help out, that could present a very real problem. In addition, the final push to destroy the Song dynasty was on the horizon. Only a few months after the Japan invasion was forced home, one of the last big Song dynasty field armies, commanded by the dynasty's chancellor, Jiasa Dao, was annihilated by a Mongol ground force. The south of China was open for conquest, and so it made sense to divert resources to that endeavor. But, even with the fall of the Yangtze River Valley and the loss of all the wealth and strategic defenses it provided, the Song did hang on for a few more years. It took three years to build up a force in the southernmost parts of China, in the province of Guangdong, right above the island of Hainan. It took a whole another year to bring the last remnants of the Song Dynasty navy to battle, and only with this final victory in 1279 were the Song annihilated for good. Kublai Khan, at the urging of his advisors, redirected substantial efforts to that end. After all, if more resources had to be thrown into the invasion of Japan, it only made sense to close out the war in China first to free troops up for a new and larger invasion. Except that Kublai also managed to get involved in a new war while closing out the war on the Song, this time against the Kingdom of Bagan, what's today the country of Myanmar, more commonly known as Burma in the West. Kublai politely suggested that Myanmar close its border with the Song Dynasty in order to cut off the Song Dynasty's trade. When the King of Bagan refused, Kublai ordered an invasion in 1277. Mongol forces smashed into Myanmar and crushed the armies of the dynasty, but the intense heat and the mosquitoes meant the armies of the Khan were forced to withdraw with no decisive result. After a while, they just became too sick to fight. 
Kublai also had one other big problem that drew his attention away from Japan, another challenge to his rule as Khan of the Mongols. By the 1270s, the actual title meant relatively little. Kublai's influence in far-flung regions of the empire like Iraq or the Crimea couldn't match that of his predecessor, for example, the second Khan Ogede. However, the title was still important, and Kublai's worthiness of that title was challenged from two corners. First and most seriously, Kublai faced a challenge from Mongol traditionalists. Those same traditionalists had attempted to prevent his ascension to the title of Khan back in 1260, backing his younger brother, Arik Boke, instead. Though that had proven a failed experiment, there remained an undercurrent of dissatisfied Mongols who believed that Kublai was becoming too Chinese in his thinking, and he was taking the rest of the Mongols with him, destroying what made them unique and powerful in the process. They rallied around a new challenger to Kublai's supremacy, Kublai's cousin Kaidu. Kaidu was from a different branch of the family of Genghis Khan. Kublai was descended from Genghis by way of Genghis's second son, Tolui, where Kaidu was descended from his third son, Ogede, who had also been the empire's second Khan. Descent from Ogede, however, did not put Kaidu above Kublai. Anyone who was a legitimate descendant of Genghis Khan enjoyed the same privileged status, and rulership of the empire was determined by a vote of a council called the Kurultai, rather than by direct blood inheritance. Kaidu hadn't sided against Kublai in the 1260 Civil War, but was suspicious both of Kublai's Chinese leanings and Kublai's closeness to one of Kaidu's political rivals, a separate branch of descendants of Tolui who ruled over Persia called the Ilkhans. The reigning Ilkhan was Kublai's nephew, Abaka Khan. Kaidu ruled over an area called the Chagatai Khanate in Central Asia to the north of the Ilkhan's territory, which we creatively call the Ilkhanate. Thus, Kaidu and Abaka Khan were constant rivals, and Kaidu feared that Kublai would step into their rivalry and intervene on the side of his nephew. So this tension between Kaidu and Kublai built throughout the 1260s, and came to a head in 1268 when Kublai tried to replace Kaidu as head of the Chagatai Khanate. Kaidu instead cooked up an excuse to execute his replacement, and just like that, the Mongols were back at war with each other. Early on, Kublai was able to put this war in the back of his mind. Chagatai territory was far from his home base in China, and at any rate, Kaidu was so embroiled in his struggles with Kublai's nephew Abaka that he was little threat to Kublai himself. However, by the early 1270s, it was also clear that this war would not end anytime soon, and that the Ilkhan alone was not strong enough to defeat Kaidu. In 1277, things took a turn for the worse for Kublai. Two of his subordinate generals revolted and jumped over to Kaidu's side, and to make matters worse, they did so while taking two of Kublai's sons and one of his leading generals as hostages. This, as you might imagine, got Kublai's attention. But while he was able to put down one of the rebellions against him within Mongolia itself, he actually lost control of part of his territory to the rebels, in what is now the western area of China's westernmost province of Xinjiang. All of these factors conspired to put a renewed war with Japan on the back burner, 
a new invasion simply wasn't practical. That wasn't to say that the Japanese had fallen off Kublai's radar altogether, merely that for now an immediate invasion was off the table. Yet Kublai decided to gamble. In 1275 he sent a new embassy to Japan, offering peace in exchange for the submission of the Japanese to Mongol rule. Sure, the Japanese had won round one, against a small force that was not prepared for stiff resistance. They'd made their point, but was it really worth gambling the fate of Japan itself? This time the ambassadors were brought to Kamakura. No more wasting time landing in Kyushu and passing notes. They were going straight to the source. And once in Kamakura, they laid out their arguments before the shogun, who was, of course, instructed to nod and smile politely, and then take a short break to ask Hojo Tokimune what he should do. Tokimune was, at this point, 24 years old and very damn confident in himself. He'd defeated the Mongol invasion, secured the homeland, and, lucky him, to cap things off he now had an heir to secure his legacy. His first son was now four, and showed every sign of being a healthy young man who could inherit from his father. So Tokimune was feeling pretty confident, and that confidence informed his response. There would be no peace, and to underscore that point, Tokimune ordered the envoys beheaded and their heads sent back to Kublai Khan in Beijing. Perhaps that would get the point across. To say that Kublai Khan took this badly would be an understatement. The execution was a direct insult to his rulership as Khan, and Kublai responded with tremendous fury. Envoys, after all, are supposed to be untouchable. One of the golden rules of diplomacy, then as now, was that you do not shoot, or I guess behead, the proverbial messenger, because doing so only served to undermine the act of diplomacy itself by making it harder to get messages from one side to the other. Nobody was going to volunteer to carry your mail if they thought they were going to get beheaded for the trouble. The Mongols took this kind of thing very seriously. Back in the days of Genghis Khan, when a local governor of the Khwarezmian Shah executed a group of Mongol envoys and merchants, the great Genghis had responded in a measured way by invading and destroying the entire Khwarezmian Empire, and incidentally, capturing the governor and, according to some stories, melting a bunch of gold and pouring it down the hapless man's throat. So yeah, Kublai was not going to take this lying down. But for now, his rage, substantial though it was, was impotent, because the destruction of the Song and the war against Kaidu took priority. In 1279, Kublai settled himself enough to take one final stab at peace, sending envoys one more time. This group didn't even make it past Kyushu before Shoni Sukeyoshi imprisoned and executed them on behalf of the Hojo. So Hojo Tokimune was committed to war with the Mongols at this point. Even if he wanted out, executing Mongol envoys guaranteed that he would not be allowed to back down without a fight. But that was not Hojo Tokimune's style anyway. He was young, he was confident, and he was ready for that fight. And in 1279, he got a new advisor who encouraged him to follow this path even further. Now this is a story that requires us to return briefly to China and take a step back in time to 1237, 37 years before the first Mongol invasion. In that year, in southern China, an 11-year-old Han Chinese boy took the vows of a Buddhist monk 
in the Chan Buddhist tradition at a temple on the slopes of Mount Tiantong in Ningbo, Zhejiang province at the mouth of the Yangtze River. Tiantong, incidentally, has a long history as a bastion of Chan, the Buddhist tradition known as Zen in Japan, and only a decade before this boy took his vows, it had hosted another visitor from Japan, a Buddhist monk named Dogen, who we will definitely be talking about at some point. But Dogen, fascinating though he is, is not our concern at this time. For this new monk took his vows in 1237 and would prove to be remarkably influential. He took a Buddhist name at the time of his ordination, Ushue or Mugaku in Japanese, literally, the absence of learning. This is a very Zen name. One of the crucial ideas of Zen is the notion that indirect, over-intellectualized book learning will actually hinder your understanding of the world. Instead, you should focus on intuitive knowledge, trust your instincts as you try to learn about things, and you'll be better served than all the darn book learning in the world. Ushue slash Mugaku went on to have a pretty distinguished career as a Zen monk, studying with many of the great masters of the age, and at many of the famous bastions of Zen in China. However, all along the way he was forced further and further south. As the power of the Yuan dynasty expanded and Kublai conquered more and more of China, Mugaku went further and further south to Buddhist institutions that had yet to be pillaged. However, in 1275 his luck finally ran out. At a temple in South China in which Mugaku was staying, he was attacked by Yuan Dynasty soldiers. This is when one of the more mythologized moments of Mugaku's life took place. The story goes that the other monks fled the temple to escape the Mongols, but Mugaku remained behind in the main hall, meditating in front of a statue of the Buddha. The soldiers, finding him alive, planned to cut off his head, Mugaku responded to their arrival with unsheathed swords by saying something that has been transcribed a few different ways. The version I came across was rendered, quote, I did a comprehensive study to seek the real universe and finally got the answer. That is to say, all is vanity. People are vanity, and even the Buddha's teachings are vanity. Now I am spiritually awakened, and so even if you want to kill me with your sword, I do not mind. I already know that I am vanity. And that means that when you swing your sword, you will just cut through a spring wind." Unquote. Bit of a mouthful right as you're about to be killed, but the general gist is pretty classic Zen. Everything is temporary, all is vanity, so who cares? Bring it. The soldiers, so the story goes, were so shocked and impressed by this display of courage that they left him alive. This story is probably exaggerated at best, but it did serve to advance Mugaku's already impressive reputation as a Zen master, so much that word of this brave monk who had defied the Mongols reached Hojo Tokimune in 1279. Tokimune extended a personal invitation to Mugaku, come to Japan, and you will have a temple all your very own. Mugaku said yes. Next week, our new dynamic duo of Mugaku and Hojo Tokimune will face down a new invasion. But for now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. 
Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Scourge of the Gods, Part 5. <laughs>